So we're going to look at Psalm 96 this morning. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 96. If you don't have a Bible, we have some ushers that have one for you, and you could keep it if you need it. And if not, feel free to give it back when you're done this morning. But we do have some Bibles that we would be happy to give away because we believe it's that important that you have the Word of God in your hands. So Psalm 96, what I like about Psalm 96 is that it doesn't waste any time. It doesn't waste time with introductions. It has no title. It doesn't tell us who wrote it. It doesn't tell us when it was written. Instead, it just jumps right into the main point right from verse 1. So let's begin at the top of Psalm 96, read through a couple verses, and meditate on it together. Psalm 96, verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Now, as I said, this psalm jumps right into it, doesn't it? doesn't waste any time. The first six lines each begin with a command, an imperative. Sing, 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 bless, proclaim, tell. Let's start with the threefold sing. It's a command, not just for the church, not just for the choir, not just for the worship team. It's a command for all believers, as we will see, maybe even beyond that. All the earth is to sing to the Lord. So we're not just talking about people at Riverstone. We're not just talking about people in Yardley, Pennsylvania. We're not just talking about Americans. We are talking about the entirety of the world, everyone in human existence, a universal command to sing to God. Sing to the Lord. Notice how Lord there is all capital letters. That means that it's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh, the personal covenantal name of God that he revealed to his people, the supreme God of the universe, making a covenantal relationship with his people. We are to sing to him. And what are we supposed to sing to him? Well, it says, sing to the Lord a new song. I want to take a moment to explain this one. When I was a teen and when I was a young adult especially, I used to love this command. I grew up in a very conservative Baptist church, hymns only, hymns only, very little instruments on stage. And I, when I stumbled across this verse, I, I used to love it. Our musicians would sing a hymn and, and I'd be very quick to think, no, no, sing a new song to the Lord, right? God loves contemporary music, not dusty old hymns. Sing a new song. Now, you know that there are a lot of opinions on church music. Right? And I don't know which side of the stage you are on in those opinions. There's a lot of opinions uh, that sometimes even split churches because of the musical options that we have. I think we should only play hymns during a service. Well, I think we should only play contemporary music during a service. I think we should lead with a piano. I think we should lead with a guitar. Right? I only worship at churches that support cage-free drummers. There's, there's all sorts of... <laughs> different opinions, right, on, on church music. So what does it mean, sing to the Lord a new song? I mean, was, was the original intent of the psalmist to tell us that we need to regularly update our musical playlist? Well, the funny thing is, we're going to see later, this new song that he sings is copied and sung again in other places in Scripture. It becomes a hymn for the people of God. 
The command to sing a new song ironically becomes an old traditional hymn even within the text of Scripture. But the phrase itself, to sing a new song, is not talking about hymns versus contemporary music. For the record, by the way, I think there's a place for both of them in the modern church. Hymns often have a rich theological depth and meaning, and, and old tunes have a way of stirring up our hearts in worship. Some of them do anyway. Well, contemporary music is often very personal and upbeat and many times communicates to a younger generation. Some of them do anyway. But there are contemporary songs very rich in theology. We've sung some of them today. And there are some hymns that have questionable lyrics. So we want to find a balance between both of them. They're both good at times. But the command to sing a new song isn't rooted in that debate at all. Why do we sing new songs to God? Think scripturally with me. Think about the new songs that we see introduced in the Bible. Think of Moses crossing the Red Sea. He gets to the other side and this great act of redemption that God has done for the people of Israel. What does Moses do? He sings a new song. Two new songs, in fact. There might have even been some dancing to some of those songs. Moses was not a conservative Baptist. Think about Hannah, 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. Here's a woman who, she couldn't have kids. She prays to God. God blesses her with a child. What does she do? She sings a new song to the Lord. Think about Mary and her cousin Elizabeth. Again, two women who were blessed unexpectedly with children. What do they do? They sung a new song to the Lord. Consider the Psalms as a whole. What, what are the Psalms about? Well, each Psalm was written as a reflection on some individual experience or communal experience people had when God did something for them. Sometimes we know what was behind the writing of the Psalms. Sometimes, like Psalm 96, we aren't quite sure. We have to piece it together with clues from within the text itself. But the point is, new songs are sung in response to God doing something in our lives. When God does something new, we sing about it. We praise Him for it. Sing a new song to the Lord. We continue to compose new music, new songs, new lyrics, new tunes. Why? Because God has not grown stale. Because God is still working. He continues to redeem. He continues to work in his people's lives. He continues to forgive. He continues to intervene. And when he does, we ought to praise him anew for it. That's why we sing new songs to the Lord. You ever been to a Christian concert? There's a lot of talking in a Christian concert, isn't there? I don't know if you've ever been to, to a concert. There's a surprising amount of talking in the, by the artists themselves, typically. Well, what are they talking about in between each song? Here's the reason I wrote this next one. Here's what God was doing in my life and what inspired me to write this song that I'm about to sing. Now, maybe you're not a singer or a songwriter, but this still has rel- relevance for you. Because the psalmist begins, sing, 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 and that's followed with bless, proclaim, tell. The psalmist amps things up a bit now with those next three verbs. The first three were written in a very normal style in Hebrew. The next three are elevated with a different kind of a verb, a stronger verb in Hebrew. Bless his name, he says. You notice that's perfectly parallel with sing to the Lord. When God blesses us, He makes us better off than what we were before. Well, we can't make God any better off than he already is because God is already as great as he can be. So when we bless him, what we're doing is we are praising him and we're singing about him for who he is and what he's done. 
we recognize his greatness. We recognize the reasons that we are singing to him and we worship him because of it. Bless the Lord. When we bless him, we also proclaim the good tidings of his salvation from day to day, as the text says. I was thinking about this this week and thinking about how we do baptisms here at Riverstone Church. It's exciting, isn't it, when we have baptisms? Why? Well, not only are people being baptized, but they are sharing their testimony. Before they go under the water, they tell everyone, here's how I got saved. This is what the Lord did in my life. They proclaim good tidings of God's salvation. But this text says that we are to do that not just on a baptism Sunday, but from day to day, meaning continually, constantly telling others about what God has done in us. So church, I ask you, when was the last time you shared your testimony with someone who doesn't know the Lord? When was the last time you shared your faith with someone who's not saved? Sometimes bringing up that conversation is a scary thing, isn't it? It's intimidating. What are they going to say? Are they going to believe me? Are they going to reject me? But God knew you would have those anxieties, so God gave you a testimony. You love talking about yourself. Why not talk about how God has worked in yourself? A good testimony is not just going to talk about you, but it's going to talk about what God has done within you. It could be a testimony of your salvation, how I came to know the Lord for the first time. It could be simply a testimony of what God is doing in you right now or in your church. Maybe your coworker is complaining that life is falling apart. You could say, hey, you know, my life was falling apart once, then I met Christ. And now as my life continues to fall apart, at least I have Jesus with me. Right? I mean, there, there are ways to transition these conversations to share, here's what God has done in my life. I would encourage you to take time this week and share your testimony with one other person. Coworker, friend, relative, somebody that needs Jesus in your life. Tell them about how you met Christ. Pray that God would show you the opportunity, that you would recognize that opportunity, and that you take a moment to evangelize the lost. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim his salvation. And the last command here in verse 3 is tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. ESV translates this, not tell, but declare. We move from singing to blessing to proclaiming to now declaring. When you declare who God is and what he's done, that's not up for debate, is it? It's not an open question. When you declare something, you are telling somebody how it really is. Well, what's so cool about this is that the psalmist uses these phrases. He says, declare among the nations, declare among the peoples of God, or among all the peoples. Nations and people, they are not typically words that are used for the Israelites. Those are terms for Gentiles, people outside the faith, people who don't have a personal relationship with the Lord. God says, declare his salvation to them. Some people have this wrong idea that, that God didn't really care about anybody but the Jews in the Old Testament. All about the Israelites, everyone else, you know what, kill them or ignore them, but we don't really care about them. We only care about the Israelites. But you see here that from the very beginning, God was missional. It was never about the Israelites sitting on their covenantal butts and watching the world burn as they had their daily fill of milk and honey. It was all about God using them to share his glory among the nations, even in the Old Testament. 
The difference between Old and New Testament is that in the Old Testament, God told Israel, stay put in this land, be holy, and the other nations will be drawn to you. In our time, God says, go, tell the world, make disciples of the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's what God commands us to do. Both are missional models, they just work in different ways. But from the very beginning, God desires that all would come to him. He's not strong-arming Gentiles out of heaven. You can't come in. If a Gentile in the Old Testament desired to place their faith in God, he could. Evangelism was not invented at the Great Commission. It didn't begin with Jesus or Paul or Peter. We have it right here in Psalm 96, our commission to declare God among the nations. So believer, sing, sing, sing. Bless, proclaim, declare of God's glory to all the nations. You see what I mean when I said this psalm gets going right away? It hits the ground running and it keeps on going. Look at the next three verses. Picking up in verse 4, the psalmist writes, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So why is God so great? Why should we sing to him? Why should we praise him? Why should he be feared above all else? Well, verse 5 tells us the so-called gods of the nations are worthless idols, but God, the God of the Bible, is far from worthless. He is creator God. The word that the psalmist uses for idols here, you could literally translate it nothings, nobodies, do-nothings. The word basically is making fun of idolatry. They might look fancy, you might bow down to them, but what are they really? They're little nothing gods. It's similar to the way Isaiah makes fun of idols in Isaiah 44. The ironsmith, he tells a story, he says the ironsmith cuts down a tree and he takes part of that tree and he warms himself and he takes another part and he bakes his bread over it and he takes the third part and he wraps some metal around it and he shapes it and he turns it into an idol and he falls down and he worships that little thing. And he prays to this idol to deliver him. But the idol, he says, is blind and mute and deaf and armless and legless and lifeless. It's unable to do anything but what the man makes it do. Who's the blind one in that scenario? Is it the idol or is it the idol maker? The idol worshiper is blinded to the reality of his own situation. Open your eyes, Isaiah says. Wake up, realize what you're doing. Worshiping these sightless helpless do-nothing gods makes you sightless helpless and a do-nothing person isaiah 44 9 he says those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile and their precious things are of no profit even their own witnesses fail to see or know so they will be put to shame now it's easy to poke fun of people who made idols back then isn't it but are we any different no, we are not. The idols back then might have been made of wood or stone or precious metals. Today, we tend to make ours out of plastic and metals. Ours tend to run on fossil fuels or electric, but are we really any different? 
Our idols are built in factories. We feed it gas. We change its oil. We wash its exterior. We buy it bumper stickers and accessories. And then we complain that we don't have enough money to really tithe in the way that we want to. And we complain that we don't have enough time in the week to spend to the Lord, with the Lord. Who is your true God? I'm using automobiles as an example there. I could have switched out a different idol of choice, couldn't I? If we were in the Silicon Valley, maybe I'd use computers or smartphones. If I were in Hollywood, maybe I'd talk about TV stars or movies. Fill in the blank with your idol of choice. We all have one. Idols aren't just things that we love. Idols aren't just things that we spend time with. Idols sometimes can be things that we fear. When we fear the results of an election more than we have a healthy fear of our sovereign God, we have displaced God in our life with an idol. Our idol becomes security. When we fear the outcome of a medical exam and it's consumed us with anxiety and stress and worry, we have displaced God in our life. Our idol is our own health. An idol is anything you love or fear above God. God alone is worthy to be worshipped, the Bible says. Why? Well, because he is not a worthless do-nothing trinket. He is creator. In contrast to the idols that have no hands and no mouth and, and they're unable to do anything, God does have a mouth to speak earth into existence. He, he used his hands to, to fashion man out of dust. That's why the psalmist said splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. That's why we sing, sing, sing about our great God. That's why we bless and proclaim and declare to the nations that their false gods, their idols, are nothing, are nobody. Their idols will not save, they will not heal, they will not forgive, but God does all of that. That's what this psalmist is singing about. And he goes on to say this in verses 7 to 10. He says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, Ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Here we have another series of commands. Just as we had before, sing, sing, sing. Now we have ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. But what in the world does that mean? It basically means to ascribe something is to give something what is due. To recognize what is already God's and to give him his due. Who are called to ascribe? It says the families of the peoples. Again, everyone on the earth ascribe to the Lord. What are we called to recognize is God's? What are we called to ascribe? The glory and the strength that are due to his name. Then the psalmist calls us to bring, to come in, to worship, to tremble, to say. Notice the progression here. Bring in an offering. Literally, he says, lift up an offering. One of the reasons we sometimes lift our hands as we sing to the Lord. It's symbolic of lifting up our offerings to God. He says, come into his courts. Where is that offering being given? For an Israelite, it would have been God's courts, the temple or the tabernacle area. Back then, they would bring their temple physically to the courts. Bring in, come into his courts, and it says, worship the Lord in holy attire. Now, I've got to say something about this one here. That's not the best translation. 
Uh, It's better to say, I think, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness or worship the Lord in all his holy splendor. Probably, Probably a better way to translate that. The way the New American Standard translates this, it sounds like the psalmist is concerned with what we're wearing. He is not, nor is anyone. You are not going to find a Bible verse that tells us how we're supposed to dress for church. You will not find a Bible verse that tells pastors what they should look like or what church clothes really are. If your conviction is that you want to dress up for the Lord on a Sunday morning because you believe it honors him, great. I'm not going to look down on you because of that. If your conviction is you want to come just as you are and because there's no Bible verses that regulate what you should wear to church, great. I'm not going to look down at you because of that. And neither of these groups should look down on the other either. These things are matters of conviction and preference, not biblical rule. So we want to be careful not to take this command out of context and twist it to say something it doesn't say. Holy attire refers to God's splendid holiness, not a three-piece suit. If you find yourself more frustrated about what your pastor is wearing on a Sunday than more reverent for how splendid your holy God is, then you have missed the point coming to church. He says, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. But think about this sequence again. You can almost imagine the steps of the sacrifice being enacted here. They bring the offering. They come into the courts of the Lord. They worship God in his holiness. And all of that is done with trembling. Tremble before him, all the earth, it says. Now, this word really packs a punch here. This is a word, tremble, that's used in other places of Scripture to describe a woman and how she moves during childbirth. A writhing, painful laboring. Now, I hate to draw that word picture here, but that's, what has, that's what's painted for us in the text by using that word. The, that kind of trembling is what's in view here. We know we are not worthy to stand before the presence of our God. The, the very idea of a holy God to a sinful people causes our knees to buckle as if in childbirth. God is truly being revered here. A, among the nations, the Lord reigns. You see, appropriate worship begins individually. Bringing an offering to God. Fearing Him as we bring it. But true worship never stops there. Say to the nations, the Lord reigns. True worship results in ministry and mission. Worship results in some kind of action. We bring our offerings to the Lord. We bring our offerings on a Sunday morning. And I'm not just talking about financial offerings. We bring our offering of praise. We bring an offering of service, of ministry, of using our spiritual gifts for God's benefit and for the edification of the church. In fact, when you leave here today, you're going to notice a table outside the auditorium. It's got information about our ministries and groups that you can connect with for discipleship and growth and even ministry opportunities. There's a QR code on the screen behind me. You could use that as well to go to a link. If, if your worship of God is motivating you to ministry here at the church, follow that link. Visit that table. Let us know how God is moving you to serve right here. I know one area of particular need right now is our children's ministry. Ted mentioned some of this uh, when he was talking about communion. We still have a few slots open for Sunday mornings in the fall for helpers for our children's ministry. If you're interested, if you're able, if you're motivated to help out, if you're gifted in that area, 
Talk to Janet, talk to Aaron, sign up at one of those, uh, at the table back there, one of those forms. I know kindergarten needs help, fifth and sixth graders need some help. We have opportunity for you to overflow your worship and allow it to transform into ministry. I told you I was at a church last week for an ordination ceremony. Uh, they did not have children's ministry during the Sunday service, at least not during the summers they don't. And for a father of four kids, there's nothing like a church that doesn't have a children's ministry that really makes you appreciate going to a church with a children's ministry. So I'm grateful for what we do here. And I would encourage you to not just be grateful, but to get your hands involved in service. The point is, true worship motivates ministry. It motivates mission. The fullness of Christianity is not just coming to church and attending. Our worship in here motivates our ministry in this building and outside these walls to the nations who do not know Jesus Christ. You want to reach the unreached? You want to make disciples who make disciples? You've got to get out of this building once in a while with your Christianity. You've got to loosen your lips and give your testimony to others who don't know him. If your only ministry takes place inside these walls, then you're also missing the point of this psalm. If you have no ministry outside of these walls each week, or at least no evidence of your Christianity outside of these walls, you are missing the point. Well, what are we to say about God according to Psalm 96? The Lord reigns. Yahweh reigns. Jesus reigns. The world is firmly established. It will not be moved. And God will judge the peoples with equity. Notice how the psalmist encompasses both past, present, and future all in those statements. Past, God established the world. He is creator. Present, the Lord reigns. He is the reigning, defending, eternal champion of our universe. And future, he will judge with perfect justice and equity one day. It's that very message, past, present, future, that we are to bring to the uttermost parts of this world. Here's what God has done in the past. He is creator. He made you. Here's what God is doing right now. He is reigning. He is sovereign over all that he made. And in the future, he is coming back, and therefore, we better be ready. That's our mission to the world, to let them know about the timeless, eternal God of our past, present, and future. So church, sing, sing, sing. Bless, proclaim, declare. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Bring, come, worship, tremble, speak. And then the psalmist erupts into this final stanza, verses 11 to 13. He says, Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the earth in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. I love this because it's almost as if all the peoples of this earth are not even enough to truly ascribe to God what he is worth. The psalmist goes beyond just humankind and now the trees of the field and the seas and the heavens and everything is included in this praise. All of creation recognizes the excellent worth of our God. Do you? Creation knows how to sing. Creation knows how to party. Do you? Why does creation rejoice? Why this overflow of joy? Because he says God is coming to judge with righteousness and faithfulness. 
Righteousness stresses perfect justice for all. Perfect godliness. Faithfulness tells us that God is going to keep every single one of His promises without fail. Notice how emphatic the psalmist is in verse 13. He says, He is coming. He is coming. He repeats himself. That's not a typo in Scripture. That's called emphasis. God is coming. You better believe it. And you better share it. He is coming. The psalmist began by commanding us to sing a new song to the Lord. And as I mentioned in the beginning, what's ironic about that is that this new song is used in other passages of Scripture in a context that I think is very relevant for us. David, for instance, turns it into a hymn. Take your Bibles just for a moment and flip over to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. I'm going to turn to the left, a few books. 1 Chronicles chapter 16. I want to show you something pretty neat here. In this part of Chronicles, King David has been trying to get the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem for some time. People have died in the process of him trying to get this ark back in because they're mishandling it. So David, he does it right this time around. He gets the right people to hold the ark. He gets the right way to do this, and he brings it home. And during this time, there's this this great celebration, and he sings a song. Now, we're going to jump in the middle of that song. Look at 1 Chronicles 16, starting at verse 23. Tell me if this sounds familiar. David says, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering, come before him, worship the Lord in holy array, tremble before him all the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established, it will not be moved. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all it contains, let the field exult and all that's in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. Does that sound familiar? It is almost exactly Psalm 96. David took Psalm 96 and he applied it to his situation. And you know what that situation was? The presence of God was among the people of God again. The presence of God was among the people of God again. And for that reason, he rejoices and he gives thanks to God with Psalm 96. In other words, because God's presence was with David... He wanted to let other people know. He wanted to share and shout about it and rejoice that God is with us. You know what the Apostle Paul once said? 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells within you? Church, the presence of God is with us. The Spirit is not located in a, in a golden box that's placed in an unseen tent or an unseen temple. The Spirit of God is within you whose fruits are manifested in you. Just like King David, this psalm is ours to claim and proclaim. It's our job to go and to spread the gospel around this world, to start here, to start at home, to start at work, but to continue sharing, here's what God has done in me. 
we can worship the presence of God together right here. And what does that mean, pastor? Does that mean that I, I've got to leave here and I've got to go across seas and be a missionary? Maybe. Wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, right? There are many other ways to do missions, though, even without being a full-time missionary. I know of one family that takes vacations on a regular basis to visit missionaries. I know of another that takes vacations. They, once a year, they, just, they connect with an organization that specializes in this thing, and they, as a family, go and do missions once a week in the summer. Maybe you could encourage a missionary instead of be a missionary, support a missionary. I, I know, working with missionaries myself, that um, many of them expect pastors to email them. Many of them expect uh, missions boards or missions directors to email them and connect with them, but they're amazed when somebody outside of that circle does so. Hey, I'm praying for you. How can we be a support? How can we help? Now, for some of the missionaries in our church, I would say check with our missions director before you do that. Some of them are working in context where um, they, they need to be a little bit more protected by what is coming in and out of their email box. But there are great ways to be involved in missions, even if you're not a full-time missionary. But either way, whatever way you go, God is commanding us, go and tell the nations of his glory. God alone is worthy of worship. So church, as you leave here, sing, sing, sing. And when you're done sing, sing, singing, go out and tell and declare that our creator is God and he reigns. And he has personally redeemed you from your life of sin. Tell of his salvation day to day because, church, he is coming. He is coming. Let's pray. Bless your name, Lord. Praise you. We ascribe to you the greatness of who you are and what you are worth. You are creator God. You have redeemed us just as you've redeemed the Israelites in the past. Lord, you have redeemed us from our sin and given us a path forward and a future. We believe that you're coming, Lord. And I pray that you would help motivate us through this psalm, through the words of Scripture, to go out and proclaim and tell and declare of that gospel to others. I ask God that you would help us to run into at least one person this week that doesn't know you as their Savior and that you would give us the awareness and the boldness and confidence to share our testimony with them, to proclaim the greatness of our God. And I pray that we would see more people in the kingdom of heaven because of who you are and the way that you've motivated our hearts and our hands for action. Thank you, God, for the words of this psalm. We praise you for it, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here today. We have a couple of elders in the room that they're going to be up front, and they are happy to pray with you. If you need anything to be prayed for, if you want to just connect with one of our elders, we'll have a few elders up front ready to pray with you today. God bless and have a great week.